Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. The concept of being in fellowship, recognizing that we need to be cleansed of sin on a ongoing basis, and what is related to that is a principle that not only goes back into the uh, deep recesses of the Old Testament, but also extends forward into the sacrificial system that will be enacted in the Millennial Kingdom. And in the church age, the principle is related to confession, as it was, as we'll see uh, this evening in our studies of the sacrifices on the uh, trespass offering or the sin offering, as it's sometimes called. So we will uh, take a look at that, but first we need to have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 1, 1.9 if uh, necessary, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that we have your word, that this is not simply a word written by men about their experiences with God, but they, they, this word is your revelation to man, breathed out by you through the prophets of the Old Testament and apostles of the New Testament, and overseen by the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, so that what is recorded is absolute truth without error, and that we can depend completely upon it. Now, Father, as we study tonight, we pray that we might again be reminded of your character, be reminded of who we are, and what a tremendous privilege it is to be able to have a relationship with you, to be in fellowship with you, and what a tremendous privilege it is to recognize that you are the one who did everything for us, and that we do nothing, we can add nothing to the work of Christ, that his work on the cross was complete and sufficient. Now, Father, as we study these things, may God the Holy Spirit open our eyes to the spiritual truths that are that we study tonight, that they may be part of our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 3. Leviticus chapter 3. Our study in Hebrews has taken us to Hebrews chapter 9, where the focus is shifts to the ritual system that God established for Israel in the Old Testament in the Mosaic Law. And the doctrinal principles that are going to be developed and unpacked by the uh, author of Hebrews are built off of an understanding of the Old Testament ritual system that was uh, articulated in the Mosaic Law. And so you have, on the one hand, the the furniture that's in the tabernacle later in the, in the uh, temple, the brazen altar, the laver, then inside the 
holy place, you have the table of showbread, the uh, candelabra, and then the altar of incense, and then inside the holy of holies, the ark of the covenant. That the, each of these pieces of furniture pictures some aspect of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and each of these says some things to us about his person and his work. And not only do the articles of furniture say something, but what takes place at each one of these. And the first article of furniture that we have taken a look at is what I have up here on the pulpit, and this is the brazen altar. And as you notice, on each corner of the altar there is a horn. This is referred to as the horns of the altar. Horn is a picture of power and authority, and each time a blood sacrifice was made. Among, all, among other things that were done with the blood, usually the blood was splattered on the side of the altar. Sometimes the entire basin that has collected the blood is poured out at the uh, base of the altar. Sometimes in, when we get into the uh, offerings related to the priests, the guilt offerings, that they would take the blood into the Holy of Holies and splatter the blood even on the altar of incense in front of the uh, in front of the veil. All is a picture of cleansing. That blood is the basis for cleansing, and we have to understand just exactly what the significance of the blood is. It goes beyond its physical properties. The physical blood is a representation of a spiritual reality. So it's important to understand the, you know, the shape, the function of the uh, altar itself to understand what is happening there. Now, in the last couple of weeks, we focused on these uh, offerings, sacrifices that are explained in Leviticus. When we look at the book of Leviticus as a whole, the first part of Leviticus, chapters 1 through 16, we find God regulating the ritual cleansing necessary to recover and maintain fellowship with himself. These are not primarily sacrifices related to salvation or the picture of the atonement itself in terms of what we would call phase one salvation, phase one being when you trust in the Messiah as your Savior and move from spiritual death to spiritual life move from a position of guilt and condemnation to uh, justification. This all occurs at an instant in time when a person, whether in the Old Testament or New Testament, puts their trust in the promise of God's provision that is focused on the person and work of the Messiah. The Old Testament looked forward to this event. In the New Testament, the church age, we look back to this event. But the focal point of history is the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross where he paid the penalty in full as a substitute for mankind. And that is an operative term here that is portrayed in all of these sacrifices is this concept of a vicarious substitution, a, I mean, a vicarious sacrifice, a penal substitution. And this principle of substitution and this principle of cleansing and the need for there to be a death of someone or something else in order to provide cleansing is found in from Genesis chapter 3 when God first first slaughters 
uh, the animals to make clothing for Adam and Eve, all the way into the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, what we find is that the favorite title for the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation is the term the Lamb of God. And he is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. He is the, the Lamb who takes away our sins. We find that this is the basis for the praise of the four living creatures and the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 5, that he is the one who was slain and is the one worthy of all of our praise. And this imagery that we have, even at the end of the Bible, in Revelation, begins in Genesis chapter 4, or chapter 3, when God first slaughters those animals and skins them. And then we see it pictured again when Noah comes off the ark, and they have uh, taken seven of every clean animal on the ark. Now, there's never a mention of clean animals before Genesis chapter chapter uh, 6. God's told, uh, Noah's told by God to take seven of every clean animal and two of every unclean animal. And the question is, how did, how did Noah even know that the, what was clean and what was unclean? It, it, it's clear that God must have revealed this at some point. So there's a lot that God reveals in that period from Genesis 1 to Genesis 11, Genesis 11 that's, that's not written in the text. And that's why I, we're very comfortable and confident in saying that when God sacrifices, kills those animals to clothe Adam and Eve, and the interplay between the fact that they had tried to solve their problem initially by clothing themselves with fig leaves, and then after God outlines the curse, he says he, he, he killed animals and he clothed them with animal skins. And by looking at all of Scripture, we can understand that what must have been going on behind that is the, the teaching of the doctrine of a substitutionary payment, that there must be a blood price paid for cleansing from the guilt and the stain of sin. And that imagery is picked up in Isaiah when he talks about the fact that, that though our sins be as scarlet, that they will be made white as snow. It is that stain of sin, that red crimson dye, was so strong that it, you just couldn't get it out. It was a permanent die, and sin is that same way. So we have these pictures, this imagery, all the way through Scripture. You have the sacrifice with Noah. You have the provision by God of a ram to take Isaac's place on the altar in Genesis 22. It's a tremendous picture, a visual of substitutionary death, that that ram died in Isaac's place. And then we get into the book of Exodus, and there's much more detailed uh, sacrifices in Exodus and Leviticus, as they're explained in Leviticus 1 through uh, 6, 7, and then the carrying out of these by, by the priests. And all of this is to prepare Israel and mankind to understand what happens when God's Messiah, the Lamb of God, as John said, who takes away the sin of the world, shows up. You just can't understand who Jesus is. God didn't just plop Jesus down uh, 200 years after Adam sinned and said, okay, now you can understand what it's all about. There has to be this, this progression of revelation, this progression of understanding. God has to teach various things in many different ways. And then in the fullness of time, Paul said, Jesus is going to come, born of a virgin, 
to fulfill his role as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God imagery is picked up in the Passover from uh, Exodus all the way up to the Passover as Jesus goes, prepares his disciples with the Lord's table the night before he goes to the cross. So the, the Passover meal itself is a picture of what happened in terms of God's redemption of Israel through that substitute lamb when the angel of death was going to pass over if the blood was applied to the door. And it's a picture that it's the application of the death of the lamb that is the basis for redemption. So we see all of this imagery all the way through Scripture, and then we come to the very end of Scripture in Revelation, and you have Jesus presented once again as the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. And what this does for us is show us as believers that the Bible is integrated, is an integrated, consistent whole where every piece fits together from the beginning to the end. Every piece uh, builds other elements that that fit perfectly together. And so this isn't the work of man. It's not the work of just three or four people who are sitting back in a smoke-filled room somewhere having a little conspiracy that we're going to fool everybody. The only explanation of this is that God has revealed himself uh, to man. So when we get to Israel and God's plan of salvation, he describes these sacrifices beginning in Leviticus chapter 1. And we've looked at the first two. Uh, the burnt offering, and the meal offering. And a couple of things we ought to note. I don't know why that happened. A couple of things we ought to note, first of all. Point number one, the location of the brazen altar speaks of the need of a sacrificial atonement, a substitution prior to entering into God's presence. There has to be an expiation for sin. There has to be a satisfaction. There has to be... The removal of guilt, that's what that term expiation means. It means the removal of guilt. And the guilt that we have is the guilt from Adam's sin. So there has to be this sacrificial atonement. But when you get into Leviticus chapter 1, these instructions are to Israel who are already viewed as a redeemed people. When were they redeemed? As a nation, not individual redemption, corporately as a nation, when were they redeemed from slavery? In the Exodus event, as they come out of Egypt, that pictures their national redemption. So when they then come to the to the tabernacle to worship God, they are coming, and the picture is that they're coming as those who are already saved. Now, of course, these all picture elements related to what we would call positional sanctification or what occurs on the cross when Christ died, but the, the reality is, is that the, the sacrifices provide a basis, the basis for the ongoing fellowship and relationship of the worshiper to God. And the principle is this recognition that there has to be a cleansing of sin continuously because we continue to sin. And when we sin, that breaks fellowship with God. When we sin, There is a change in our relationship, not in terms of its eternal realities, we can't lose our salvation, but in terms of that day-to-day ongoing fellowship, darkness has entered into the relationship, and that has to be cleansed. The basis is always the same, which is the blood of Christ, 
First uh, John one seven lays the foundation that <clears throat> we are cleansed, continually cleansed, present tense. We're continually cleansed by the blood of Christ. But if that meant we didn't have to confess our sins, that there didn't have to be some dynamic of ongoing cleansing when we get out of fellowship, then First John one nine would not have needed to have been stated. So First John one seven is stated first to give us the foundation. It's the finished, completed work of Christ, our positional forgiveness, our positional cleansing. But in the day-to-day experience, we have to admit or acknowledge our sin because it teaches us to focus on the fact that there's ongoing sin. We can't slip into arrogance, can't slip into pride. And that's the same lesson that's taught again and again and again in the Mosaic Law when there's all these regulations about what can render you unclean, not only sin, but many many activities that are not sinful in and of themselves, but they they are <clears throat> they relate to sin. They're involved with sin, touching a dead body. Uh, a woman who gives birth is unclean. Why? Because it goes back to the curse that for the women, their pain in their childbirth will be multiplied. Uh, touching a dead body, physical death is a consequence of sin. Eating uh, certain animals. Uh, that were carrions, uh, carrion eaters, and were um, uh, like um, catfish or shrimp or lobster, all the good stuff. Uh, you couldn't eat it because they uh, ate off the dead stuff that's at the bottom of the of the ocean, and so that is connected to the penalty of sin. So God uses this to teach uh, visual aids to teach about salvation, to teach about ongoing. Our relationship with him, and that he provides everything. So we saw that the foundational offering was the burnt offering. Not always the first thing that comes in, but when the offerings are combined, when there's a burnt offering and a peace offering, burnt offering and a, um, <clears throat> a guilt offering, the burnt offering is always the first one because that is the foundational, uh, that is the foundational offering. So we saw that the burnt offering, just in terms of suffer, uh, just in terms of um, summary, the burnt offering is a picture of fellowship with God. It is a picture of fellowship with God, positional or experiential, because they're both grounded in the one event of Christ's death on the cross. So the burnt offering pictures the work of Christ on the cross as a substitutionary blood sacrifice. In the act of bringing the sacrifice, the worshiper lays his hand on the head of the burnt offering, which is a picture of identification. It's a picture of transfer of his guilt to the animal. It is an innocent animal uh, without defect, and so the animal is brought, uh, he's, uh, after observation, is brought uh, to be sacrificed. We saw that these uh, burnt offerings were the basic offering every day in the temple, every morning, every evening, and that this is the foundation for the ongoing uh, relationship of the people uh, people with God. We saw that burnt offerings were practiced as early as Genesis 8.20 when Noah came off the ark, and also in Genesis the sacrifice in relationship to Isaac was a burnt offering. And it is through the burnt offering that they experienced real forgiveness, even though those offerings themselves could not take away 
uh, sin and guilt because the blood of bulls, as we'll see when we get into Hebrews 10, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. But nevertheless, we're specifically told in the Scripture not only that that God forgave them. Again and again, you have statements that God forgives them on the basis of these sacrifices because of what uh, because of what they picture. Second offering we got into last time was the meal offering, or sometimes called the gift offering or the tribute offering. This is a bloodless offering. It was raw, a raw grain offering. It was the finest of grain that was brought. It was mixed with oil, and the offering was baked, or it was grilled or pan-fried. Uh, it could be brought raw. No leaven or honey was to be used with it because that's a picture of sin, and it's to be from the first fruits of the harvest. And in uh, some cases, it's to be seasoned with salt as a reminder of the permanence, permanence of God's uh, covenant with Israel. Now, last time we went through the various facets of the meal offering, noting that the fine flour, which was very expensive in some passages, such as Ezekiel 16:13 and 2 Kings 7:1. It is seen as a luxury item and compared with gold and silver in terms of its value. So it represents the value of the sacrifice, and in terms of its representation of Jesus Christ, it pictures the impeccability of the Lord Jesus Christ. The pouring of oil on it, in verse 1, depicts the anointing of the Messiah, which is a picture of the fact that he has been appointed by God for a reason and for a purpose. The frankincense that is also part of the offering uh, would produce a sweet smell, indicated that God accepts the sacrifice of Christ uh, on the behalf of the believer. Now, one of the things that I know was there's another aspect to this sacrifice, a grain offering of first fruits, that's described in verse 14. And I ran out of time the last time, didn't get a chance to really develop this too much, but it's a, an important, uh, it's an important passage. Now, if you have, a, uh, have, your, have your Bible and uh, read it, you will note in the, especially in the New American uh, Standard Text, that, that God, this verse reveals that God is really a Southerner. Because if you notice in the text, in both verse 14 and verse 16, that the green heads of grain, that's how it's translated in the King James, is translated as grits. God likes grits. So that means God's a Southerner. I've never met a Yankee yet that liked grits. So this tells us God's not only a Southerner, but he also likes beer, because later on we'll see that there's a there's a strong drink offering, and most people think that that means something other than beer or, or wine. That's all they had back then. Nobody knew how to distill beverages and make uh, scotch or vodka or anything like that until the 8th or 9th century A.D. So the only thing a strong drink offering could be is wine or beer, and the word translated strong drink means barley beer. So just something you can remember, something you can entertain your friends and neighbors with sometime, is that God likes grits and he likes beer. So you can just, that, that'll, just a little bit of Bible trivia you need to remember. Now, when we, in conclusion to the uh, grain offering, 
and the emphasis and the, the role of the oil. The oil is a picture of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And we have several points to cover in relationship to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, first of all, the ministry of the, Lord Je- of the Holy Spirit in, in sustaining Jesus Christ is prophesied in the Old Testament. The key passage is Isaiah 11, 2, and 3, talking about God's the this, this sixfold spirit being poured out upon uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, also mentioned in Isaiah 42, 1 and Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. In his humanity, Jesus Christ had to face all kinds of testing. He had to face all the normal vagaries of life that we face uh, because he would become thirsty, he would become hungry, physically he would become tired. All of these things would enter into his day-to-day experience, and he had to make choices as to how he handled these things uh, you know, when you get tired, I know this really doesn't apply to anybody here. I'm just talking uh, theoretically. When people get tired, sometimes they get grumpy. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ had to deal with the fact that whether or not he would get grumpy when he was tired. So unlike most of us, he didn't. He didn't make those that choice. So he had to rely on the Holy Spirit, and he used the same basic skills that we use to solve these problems and tests. He had to rely on the promise of God. He had to rely on the doctrine that he knew in his soul, understanding the plan of God, the grace of God, the provision of God, his love for God. He's focused on his uh, his mission. All of these things uh, gave him a focus on on solving the problems through the sustaining ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And we have that same ministry. And that's part of the thrust of what we see in Hebrews is that because we have the same ministry of the Holy Spirit that the Lord had, we too can make those decisions to not sin. The problem is that we don't, and we need to be constantly reminded. It's so easy for us just to relax, and then uh, the spiritual gear shift slips out of forward momentum and into neutral And next thing you know, we're just crashing into the ditch of carnality. Second thing we noted was that um, the Holy Spirit was related to the baptism of Jesus. This is his inauguration into his ministry. The same thing happens to us when we trust in Christ as our Savior. We are baptized or identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, which sets us apart positionally for service. We've seen that um, under point three, the Holy Spirit sustained Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry, Matthew twelve, eighteen and twenty eight, Luke four, fourteen, fifteen, and eighteen. And when the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness and he was uh, without food and water, I mean for or without food, he fasted for forty days. 40 nights, and then through the three tests of the devil, it's the Holy Spirit who led him into the testing. Sometimes we think when we get into testing that, whoops, wait a minute, I must have made a wrong turn uh, last night when I was contemplating my navel in terms of what kind of liver quiver I would have to make this decision. I must have misread 
those uh, sensations, and so I made a wrong turn. And it's funny how so many people evaluate the decision-making in their life, and even if they do it right, and they sit down, I've seen this, I've gone through this myself, you make all the right decisions, you weigh every piece of evidence you can come up with, you talk to wise people who've gone through similar things, and you get their input, you look at all the circumstances, you weigh all the factors, you pray about it, you trust God, and you make the decision, and six months later, after you've moved across the country, you've taken a new job, you've bought a house, you've gotten a new car, the company decides that they're going bankrupt, they close their doors, you're out of a job, and now you live uh, 3,000 miles away from family, friends, church, everything else, and you say, why did God let me do this? And now we start blaming God. And the reality is that through the decision-making process and the application of doctrine, we were covertly led by the Holy Spirit to a wilderness situation to be tested to see if the doctrine in our soul would keep us from blaming God. Oops, failed that one. So, that's the point, is we have the same Holy Spirit. He will take us covertly into places where there is testing so that we can grow, apply the doctrine that we we have, and see how God uh, works in our lives. Fourth, the sustaining ministry of the Holy Spirit continued when Christ was bearing our sins on the cross. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you look at the Hebrew from which that is quoted in, in Psalm 22, the why have you forsaken me is a singular pronoun. It is not my God that is the Father and my God that is the Holy Spirit. Why have you both forsaken me? It is my God, my God, both in reference to the Father, why have you singular, uh, why have you singular uh, abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you allowed me to go through this? Jesus asked that question. And it is the Holy Spirit, though, that doesn't forsake him, doesn't abandon him. It is the Holy Spirit who strengthens him so that in those three hours on the cross, when he goes through pain and suffering and misery that you and I cannot even imagine. On our worst day, in our worst pain, we are not going through one-tenth of one percent of what Jesus went through in the first five minutes on the cross. We just can't even fathom, we can't even describe the intensity of it because it was so horrific that the sinless, impeccable, second person of the Trinity bore in his body, in humanity, in hypostatic union, the deity didn't leave, in hypostatic union, he bore in his body on the cross the full weight and penalty for our sin. Every bit of it. And he was separated from the Father judicially for those three hours. And what enabled him to do that and to not sin, to not come off the cross, to not uh, walk away from it, was the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And that's the same ministry each of us has to enable us to get through anything that happens. And the test and the misery, and some of the worst tests we have are, are from our own emotions. 
And we just think, well, this is never going to go away. And the point is to relax. Never is a long time, and it won't last probably till tomorrow. And But we're so impatient that we have to try to solve it in our own strength immediately. Fifth thing that we see from the Holy Spirit's role with, this, with the, our Lord is that he had a role in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his physical resurrection according to Romans 8.11 and 1 Peter uh, 3.18. And then six, the present ministry of the Holy Spirit in relationship to Jesus Christ is described in John 7.39 and John 16.40 in terms of its result, which is the glorification of Jesus Christ. And so he comes to the church for the purpose of glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's ministry is not to glorify himself. He's not the focal point of his ministry, despite what the charismatics and the Pentecostals say where they put so much emphasis on the Holy Spirit and sing songs like, Come Holy Spirit, Come. And, of course, he's already here raising his eyebrows saying, Why are you saying that? Point number seven. Uh, as we look at the... Actually, this is from another point. Here we go. The next thing to remember in our... And the next offering that we're going to study is the one in chapter 3, which is the peace offering or the fellowship offering. The peace offering or the fellowship offering. And I'm going to cover this in about nine points, just nine points of summary, just to break it down into its basic components. First of all, in terms of the nomenclature, in terms of the nomenclature, it's known as a fellowship offering or a peace offering, even though the other offerings also talk about fellowship. This is a, an offering that is a celebration of the fact that we already have peace with God. We already have fellowship with God. It is not uh, <clears throat> like the burnt offering, which is a picture of regaining fellowship or maintaining ongoing fellowship. It's not like the sin offering or the uh, trespass offering is dealing with the uh, confession and cleansing after, after the commission of, uh, of sin, this is a celebration of ongoing uh, offering. And that is because this is the only one of these sacrifices that involves the worshiper eating part of the sacrifice. And it is a picture, uh, it was a celebration in Israel. They would have a feast and they would sit down and eat from the sacrifice. And it is a picture, the idea of sitting and eating a meal with someone is a picture of fellowship. It's a picture of a partnership and communion, which is a background to, uh, to understanding the imagery in the Lord's table. <clears throat> the peace offering itself could be part of many other offerings. It could be part of a thank offering. It could be part of an individual praise related to the individual uh, praise psalms, or it could be a corporate praise related to uh, declarative praise psalms. It could be as a result of the fulfillment of a vow, as we see in Leviticus 7, 16 to 17, and Numbers 6, 17 to 20. It could be in the fulfillment of a vow, Leviticus 7, 16 to 17, and Numbers 6, 17 to 20. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah 
after becoming pregnant and giving birth to a son, goes to the temple and offers a uh, peace offering. She brings three young bulls. Uh, she brings an ephah, a flower, and a skin of wine in payment of her vow for the provision of Samuel. So part of her vow fulfillment was uh, a peace offering. And it, all of that, the, the, the three young bulls and the ephah of flower indicate a very well-to-do, uh, prosperous household. The word that is used here that's translated peace for peace offering comes from the same word that's used for a greeting in Hebrew, shalom. It's a word for peace, and it is the word salem, meaning, and in the hifiel stem, it means to make peace, to fulfill, or surrender. It is a recognition that the peace that we have with God has already been accomplished, and now we are enjoying the benefits of that. It is reminiscent of what Paul says in Romans uh, 5, 1, having now been justified, we have peace with God. That is our position. We have been reconciled to God. Second thing we should note under point number two in terms of the, the uh, terminology is that the, the uh, use of salam here in the cow stem indicates a peaceful relationship already in existence. This is supported in the Septuagint by the use of the word soterion. It's, a, it's in light of deliverance that has already been accomplished. So it's a celebration of a past, uh, past event and the present ongoing reality. Point number three, the mechanics, beginning to deal with the mechanics of the offering. The peace offering could be from the herd, and it could be male or female. Now, in other offerings, the emphasis would be that it would be either a male or a female, but here it could be either male or female, and we're not sure what the distinction was or why in some offerings it's male and other offerings it's female. I don't know. I haven't read anybody else who has a clue either, so I'm not going to speculate. Uh, the peace offering could be from the herd, that would mean from the cattle, or it could be from the flock, either sheep or goats, either one. But they had to be without defects, so there would have to be an evaluation period, and it would have to be clear that there's no defect. And once again, that pictures the impeccability of the Lord Jesus Christ and his humanity, that he was without sin and therefore qualified to go to the cross and pay our penalty uh, for us. And verse 2 we read, And he, that is the offer, shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it. He slays it. He slaughters it at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So the tabernacle of meeting is outside the Holy of Holies. He kills it at the door. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle. Now, that, that's not really a good Analogy sprinkling, I always think of is just you know like you, you if you're ironing. See, I like to iron. I was taught how to iron years ago, and I iron everything. We just kind of dip your hand in the water, just sprinkle a little bit there, and it just see, seems so I don't know so weak and wimpy uh, a concept. This is a, a splattering of the blood. All of this picture is something that it's very it's violent. Um, that the, the sin is violent. This is supposed to picture something that is horrible in terms of the, the payment of a, 
of, of, a, of, a, of a penalty. And so the, the, the blood is just taken and splattered against the sides of the altar. <clears throat> so the, the, uh, the person bringing the sacrifice brings it up. Uh, the, the Aaron's sons, the priests, splatter the blood all around the altar in verse 2. And in verse 3, then he shall offer from the sacrifice of the peace offering an offering made by fire to the Lord. So part of it is consumed as a burnt offering. And this would include the fat that covers the entrails and all of the fat that is on the entrails. And the, the, you ask the question, well, why the fat? What's the, what is so significant about the fat? Well, this shows that this is a healthy animal that this is a, an animal that has been well-fed, an animal that is not just skinny or ill. And so it pictures the uh, fact that the giving of this animal uh, is the giving of something that has value, and this is something that is uh, significant. So uh, the one who brings the offering lays his hand on the head of the offering. This is point number four. It's a picture of identification and substitution. Again and again, we see this picture that the, there must be a substitute for us to have a relationship with God. Man can't do it on his own. There has to be a substitute. Uh, the fifth point, that the uh, sacrifice is offered by fire, the, the fats burn, the in, entrails, the fat on the entrails, the fat around the kidney, the fat around the liver, and from the sheep, the, the, and the, and the uh, Palestinian sheep ha- have these large, larger than other sheep, large fat tails, and they would, they would burn that uh, upon the fire. That must have smelled good, you know, like a good barbecue. And that's the sweet savor offering because these three offerings are sweet savor offerings. And there's no burning of the hide because the animal is skinned. There's no burn, the, the entrails are cleansed. So all of the, uh, uh, stuff that is inside the guts and all of the fecal material that's inside the, 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 uh, the colon and everything, the entrails, it's all cleaned out. And so you're, you're cooking the meat, you're cooking uh, the fat, and so that's going to have a, a good smell, uh, good smell to it. So if you live downwind of the, of the tabernacle, you probably would often think about having a good steak for dinner. So Leviticus uh, 3.17, though, shows that there's a per- permanent statute against the eating of the blood or the fat of the sacrifice. Now, why that? Well, first of all, there's the prohibition against eating the blood because blood is a picture of life. And the picture here is that the blood is not to be eaten. The blood of the sacrifice is to be poured out. It is a picture of death. And the reason that the fat of the sacrifice was not offered is because uh, what, what makes the sacrifice valuable, it's a picture of the value and the worth of the sacrifice, is to be consumed upon the altar. That which is of value belongs to God. And it is a picture that that which is valuable in our lives belongs to God. Our lives are not for us to just use and live out on our own terms. 
but everything belongs to God. He is the one that has supplied everything. And so the picture in all of these sacrifices that deal with the uh, consumption of fat upon the altar is a picture of our of the believer's commitment and a recognition that everything that he has in life is from God and belongs to God. Also, the fact that the liver would be consumed would prohibit or keep people from taking the livers and using them to uh, uh, in hepatoscopy, which is the use of the liver to tell fortunes. And they would do various other means of divination in the uh, pagan religions. So the liver and these other parts are burned also to prevent that from taking place. So point number six, in terms of the basic procedure, the worshiper presents the altar, the offering. It's examined. He slaughters it himself. Later on, the priest would do that, but initially the individual is supposed to do it. So you uh, experience the impact of your sin in causing the death of the animal. Uh, the priest would apply the blood to the altar, to the horns of the altar, and then burned various parts of the offering. The fat was removed and burned, and which represents the choicest parts of the animal that everything in our life, everything that, we, that is of value, belongs to God. Uh, point number seven, it's a picture that everything is offered on the altar, and it is designated as food. It is designated as food, which indicates that there it was not, God doesn't need it to eat. God doesn't eat it, so who's eating it? Well, the worshipers are eating it. It's a picture of that shared communion and the celebration of what God has provided. So point seven, all is offered on the altar with the burnt offering, but there is offered as food. And so this food is shared with the worshiper and others with him, and often they would have a feast or a banquet there which illustrates fellowship, and they are celebrating the joy of their fellowship with God. Under uh, point number eight, we have the fact, the emphasis on blood that runs all the way through these sacrifices. And the idea of blood is a picture of something. It is a picture of guilt and it is a picture of death. When something bleeds, it dies. You have phrases such as uh, Leviticus 20, verse 9, his blood shall be upon him. And that's a, using blood as a figure of speech for guilt. In the Old Testament, in passages such as Deuteronomy 12, 23, uh, life is equated with blood. So when the blood comes out, life is gone. Uh, in passages such as Genesis 9-6, when it states that whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall also be shed, that's a picture of a violent death, a murder. But it it's, doesn't mean that it's restricted only to those situations where somebody actually bleeds. Poisoning, strangulation, all of these other kinds of, of uh, murders would also come under that same category. So blood is a picture of death, and this is why the blood is to be collected. The blood is put on the horns of the altar. The blood is splattered on the uh, base of the veil inside the holy place. 
uh, in the sin offering with the priest. The blood is poured out of the base of the offering. All these things happen to indicate that it is the, the blood that is the death of the uh, sacrifice that is the basis for the relationship with God. So in conclusion, point number nine, this offering reflects an ongoing fellowship or communion with God and is thus an expression of joy or celebration over our uh, relationship with God. So that is, um, and it's a perpetual statute, verse 17, this shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. In all your dwellings you shall eat neither fat nor blood. Now that brings us to a division very subtle division, but nevertheless a division between chapter 3 and chapter 4. And this is seen because for the first time since 1-1, God speaks again. Thus, God speaks in verse, verse 1, uh, the word of the Lord came to Moses saying, and then you have the word of the Lord called to Moses in 1-1. Then you have he, the explanation of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering. And then there's a break, and now the word of the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, and indicates a distinction. And the first three are volunteer, voluntary sacrifices, and they represent uh, the ongoing fellowship or relationship that the worshiper has with God. But the sin offering in chapter 4, the trespass offering in chapter 5, these picture offerings that have to be uh, handled in relation to particular sins in the life of the believer after salvation, that they're sins of omission, sins of ignorance, sins that did not involve intention on the part of the, of the believer, but they break fellowship with God. And so there's the need for ongoing, um, ongoing cleansing. Now, in this next section in chapter 4, you could really divide it into uh, four different sections dealing with different people or different groups. The sin offering has to do with uh, inadvertent sin or unintentional sin. And verses 3 through 12, it deals with the sin offering in relationship to the sin of the high priest. It deals with leadership, and there's more has to be done in relation to the high priest because he's in a position of greater influence. It's not that his sin is worse than anybody else's sin, but that the consequences of his sin before the people as a leader uh, can have greater uh, negative consequences. All sin violates the righteousness of God, even the most uh, common Sin, the ones that we think really aren't that bad, sins related to something as simple as eating a piece of fruit, are sins that separate us from God. It doesn't have to be a great sin, such as murder. It doesn't have to be something horrible in terms of genocide. It doesn't have to be any of these other things that man looks at as so terrible to, to be the cause of our separation from God. Just something, anything, no matter how innocuous it may seem, there's a violation of what God, God says. And that's what separates us from God. So that it all has to be paid for by Christ on the cross. But there is a recognition that some sins have greater consequences than others. And so there is, in terms of experience, a scale of value in terms of the penalties for different, different sins and who commits them. 
So the sin of the high priest is mentioned in verses 3 through 12. Then there's the sin of the congregation, when the congregation as a whole commits some infraction. And verses 13 through 21, then the leaders of the congregation bring the offering uh, to the uh, taber- tabernacle and to the brazen altar. Then there's a sin offering for the ruler. How is that handled? And that's described in verses 22 through 26. And then the sin offering for the individual who commits a, an infraction. And then sin offering for specific types of offenses as described in chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 13. So when we come to this offering, the sin offering, some have called it a purification offering because that is its consequence. There, the, the believer must be purified of the sin, must be cleansed of the uncleanness before he can come, have, be restored to fellowship with God. And that is a picture that goes on throughout history. Some may say, well, you know, the reason they had to keep doing that in the Old Testament was that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. That's what Hebrews says, right? So when you get to the New Testament, the blood of Christ continually cleanses from all sin, 1 John 1, 7, so you don't really need to confess your sins. That's just, that's talking about something else. That's just legalism. Because the work of Christ is completed, right? That's what people said. I've heard people tell me that. Okay, if that's true, then the death of Christ is just as complete and sufficient for sin in the millennial kingdom as it is in the church age, right? Of course right. So why do the priests in the millennial temple have to have burnt offerings and sin offerings and guilt offerings in order to be cleansed of sin when they go into the presence of God serving in the temple? Because sin still corrupts our relationship with God, even though we're saved. And it's going to be just as true in the future kingdom as it is in the church age. Just because the dynamics and the relationship differ, there still needs to be this issue of cleansing. I remember years ago getting um, in a lot of discussions over this whole issue, and people always wanted to focus on confession. Confession is not the key word in 1 John 1, 9. The key word in 1 John 1, 9 is cleansing. And forgiveness. And you trace those concepts from Genesis to Revelation, from the first dispensation into the millennial kingdom. Whenever man commits sin, there is a breach of the relationship with God, and cleansing must take place. Even if there's positional cleansing, it still needs to be applied to the new instances of ongoing, ongoing sin. So, the first thing we note is that the terminology here is the hata offering, which has to do with, is the word for sin, and it literally means to miss the mark or to miss the target. It's used that way in Judges 20.16 when it talks about the left-handed uh, Benjamites who could uh, throw a rock with their sling and not miss the target. So literally... It has that meaning in Judges 20, verse 16. And the target, of course, when it's applied to sin, is the righteousness of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't hit the target. And there needs to be a cleansing of sin. There needs to be an expiation of the guilt. And someone else has to do that. And that's the picture in the purification offering. So the purpose of this offering is to be cleansed so that fellowship can be restored. 
and the purification deals with removing the defilement or the the uh, uh, impact that sin has had, and all sin, known and unknown, must be forgiven. Now, the third thing that we note is that the sin is not the sin offering is not a voluntary sacrifice, as the first three were. This is something that is mandated when somebody sins or if they are rendered unclean. Under those conditions, this offering was required of all. It's required of priests, it's required of the congregation, the rulers, and individuals as you go through and read through the, through the passage. And the focus is always in relation to atonement and, uh, and forgiveness. That sin is a crucial word in this can, is, um, uh, cannot be doubted because it is used so many times in chapters 4 and 5. This is Chapter 4 is the first time the word is used in uh, Leviticus. So the sin in question, under point number 4, the sin in question is one that was unintentional or one that is out of ignorance. It, there's a, a sin of commission, a sin of the high hand. These are other categories of sin. This chapter is simply dealing with the sin of unintentional sin, It's inadvertent, it's not premeditated, it's not intentional. In Genesis 20, verse 9, when Abimelech complains to Abraham, that was an unintended, uh, a sin of unintentionality. Numbers 22, 34, Balaam is unaware that uh, God was the one who opposed him. That's a sin of unintentionality. But there's a contrast with sins of what the Bible calls sins of the high hand in Numbers chapter 15, uh, verse 30. So these sins, this offering just deals with the sin of ignorance. So point number five, what happens? A priest brings a bull, lays his hand on the bull, slaughters the bull, takes the uh, some of the blood to the tent inside the Holy of Holies, dips his finger in the blood, and splatters the blood seven times before the Lord on, at the veil of the sanctuary. The priest was then to go out and put some of the blood on the horns of the altar as a fragrant incense. All of the blood of the bull was then to be poured out at the base of the altar of burnt offering. But then all the fat of the entrails, the kidneys, the loins, the liver uh, was to be offered up in the smoke of the burnt offering. But the hide, the flesh, the head, the legs, and the entrails and guts were to be taken to a clean place outside the camp where they were mixed with the ashes from the other offering. They're poured out, and these parts are then burned on wood with fire. And the picture there is that the sin is removed from the individual. The guilt is removed. He's separated from the guilt, and there it is dealt with completely and totally so that all of the sacrifice is consumed. Now, in the sin offering, different animals were used. A bull was used for the high priest or for the congregation, a male goat for the ruler, a female goat or lamb for the common person. But if they were poor, they could also bring a pigeon or a turtle dove. Or if they were the poorest of the poor, a tenth of an ephah of flour uh, could be brought. So in other cases, uh, for example, with the congregational sin, the elders would lay their hands on the head of the bull. They would also splatter the blood in the tent of, of meeting. In the case of the sin of the ruler, uh, the goat was a male without defect. It could not be male or female. It had to be a male without defect. Uh, he's, it's slaughtered before the altar. The blood is not taken into the tent of meaning, but it's a, all uh, applied to the horns of the altar and then poured out on the base. 
with the sin for the individual, he would bring a goat, a female goat. Notice, not male or female, but in this case, a female goat without defect, or a lamb, uh, female without defect, and then the blood was put on the horns of the altar and the rest of it poured out. So this describes the confession, we would say, the confession offering. This is the restoration to uh, fellowship. So we have covered four of the offerings, four of the things that take place at the at the uh, brazen altar as a person would come into the tabernacle. One or more of these four would uh, take place there, and then there's one more to cover, and we will get that get to that in some review when I return from Israel in about three weeks. And I get back at midnight the night before, so we'll see if I'm awake or asleep on that Thursday night. But somehow I'll make it. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to say these things because they remind us of your grace, that you've provided a substitute for us. You have provided the Lord Jesus Christ who took upon himself our sin. He paid the penalty. And so we can rejoice in the fact that we have a complete and full salvation. We can rejoice in the fact that we are members of the royal family of God. We can rejoice in the fact that you are our Father and that no matter what happens in life, we are secure in that relationship. Father, I pray that you would challenge us with the things we study, that we may see clearly how the work of Christ on the cross fulfilled these pictures, these types, And they show for us that we have a complete, sufficient, total salvation that takes care of every aspect of sin. We pray this in the name of our Lord who died for us, Jesus Christ. Amen.